today we're at the OK Corral uh, for a shootout uh, with my friend Wild Bill, otherwise known as uh, Dr. Steve Paulson of Luther House's Study, and my nephew Nick, who will be our attorney on the scene, uh, adjudicating uh, whether we're dead to rights on interpreting the second of three classic interpretations of the Christian doctrine of atonement. And so, uh, welcome, partners. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Nick. And so first, I'd just like to take a moment to set the stage for our conversation today. Today, um, in this, our second session, or actually better, uh, our third session, but our second um, interpretation of the atonement, namely the subjective humanistic one, is arguably the most popular understanding of the atonement in our time. Um, it's sometimes referred to in theological circles as the moral influence or exemplarist view. That is to say, we as Christians are to see in Christ's death on the cross the ultimate expression or moral example of God's love, such that we're inspired, uh, so moved to love one another as God has first loved us, as we read in 1 John chapter 4. Thus, whereas in our first um, theory of the atonement, the objective or Latin view, uh, which we discussed in session one, where God is the object of Christ's atoning work on the cross, here we have a view of Christ with an emphasis on his humanity, his exemplary life, who serves as the subject of the atonement. So to draw upon an aphorism often found on bracelets in our popular culture, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And um, I'm just going to maybe put a little postscript to this. I think that the supposed pushback may be corrective that Abelard raised against Anselm, which we covered last week, Abelard being uh, a younger contemporary of Anselm, is that he lost sight of what many people would consider to be the very nature of God, and that is God's love for us. Um, we have it right there in 1 John 4, uh, God is love. And when we look across the whole landscape of the salvation history in the Old and New Testament, we see there and read about, it's witnessed in the prophets like Isaiah and uh, minor prophets like Hosea, that um, God's relationship with his chosen people, Israel, is like this fatherly, motherly figure with one's children. Uh, precious to God. And there's this sense of hesed, there's this sense of deep love uh, for uh, God's people, uh, especially we think of the Exodus events, uh, we think of um, some of the imagery that the prophets portray, and then it's brought into the New Testament, um, particularly with uh, the parable of the prodigal son and Jesus uh, himself going to the cross. So uh, maybe this introductory kind of question um, is this. Are we able to get rid of this idea of Christ being God incarnate, as many in this interpretation, especially in our time, are inclined to think that Christ is now being seen in his humanity, uh, which is important to stress, the humanity of God. But Christ is therefore thought of as Maybe this exemplar of um, a morally uprighteous life, like as Dr. Paulson has referenced, Socrates, Gandhi, Martin Luther, um, surely expressing the height of human love, but uh, is this the love of God? So how, uh, Steve, would you respond to this particular interpretation in terms of the nature of God or God's relationship to the world, uh, especially in Christ as 
what would be the difference? I mean, what's at stake here um, if we do not emphasize Christ as God incarnate, but rather as one whom God uses as the great exemplar that we are to follow and be inspired by? Yeah, I, I think probably the main issue here when we're talking about Jesus on the cross um, is uh, how, in what way is Jesus dying on the cross supposed to be used by us as an example of how to uh, live, believe, or in this particular case, how we're supposed to learn how to love. And um, this is a long-standing uh, concern in all of theology that uh, usually uses Augustine's distinction when it comes to Christ as to whether you're going to use Christ as a, a, an example to imitate, the imitation of Christ, or whether you're going to use him uh, as a sacrament, that is, uh, to give him to people. and. It was Luther who picked this up and said, of course, both of these are true. Jesus is going to be an example for us, uh, but that is by far the smallest thing. And it comes well after talking about how he is a sacrament. And this especially affects the way we understand uh, Jesus on the cross. And to cut to the chase, the long-standing thing for many Christians, including Abelard, who really represents this particular way of thinking about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, what Abelard is trying to say to us is that Jesus dying on the cross, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, is essentially attractive. It's something that is actually appealing if you learn uh, the inner depth of the thing. And therefore, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is something that we are, that, that you have to learn how to love. And when you learn to love the cross, you will actually then learn uh, to love others as God loves us and so on. And this finally is what uh, someone like Luther later on utterly rejects, because he says not only is that not possible, but it isn't what actually is happening on the cross. And he keeps repeating, Luther does later, that uh, no matter how much we try to love the cross, we don't do it. Whether it's turning the cross into our main symbol of a Christian and our jewelry, this is what we normally wear, as the example of what is attractive. Uh, and it also falls into what, um, what a, uh, a famous a Lutheran pastor once called putting lilies on the cross, uh, which is our way of, of making it sound appealing. Or even if we go to the old American, um, uh, well, it's not truly a, a hymn, uh, but song, The Old Rugged Cross. Yeah, yeah. So everybody knows the song, The Old Rugged Cross, and The Old Rugged Cross is supposed to be sung uh, by people so that you really learn how to love that thing. Uh, and in comes Luther and says, no, that isn't actually possible, and it's not what you actually do with it. So in a way, to use kind of an opening image of the OK Corral here, putting us dead to rights, it's um, share again with, with us, uh, Steve, the distinction between the theology of the cross and what you've just alluded to here with putting roses on the cross as a theology of glory. Um, yeah. Just dead to rights in terms of just honesty uh, of the human condition. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, what what uh, what usually happens here, and it happened with uh, someone like Abelard, is that when it comes to the cross, we start to figure as Christians that that uh, what Jesus on the cross is teaching us is how to love differently than the way the rest of the world loves, and supposedly what you're supposed to learn here is that. Um, that in the world, everybody loves whatever instantly it finds attractive. 
and then it goes running around uh, trying to uh, possess that attractive thing with the idea that if you can possess the, the attractive thing, uh, you will find happiness. Um, and, uh, and then uh, supposedly the theology of the cross comes in and teaches you not to seek that which is attractive, but actually to seek that which is unattractive. It's a strange negation of what the rest of the world is supposed to teach you. And then you're supposed to learn how to um, figure out what's attractive to you, then actually uh, 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 turn it into something that's repulsive, and take the thing that was originally repulsive to you, and then learn how to love that um, evil, bad, sinful thing, as if that's what God is doing when he loves sinners. And that is not the theology of the cross. That is just turning your love mechanism upside down. And one of the great examples of this uh, is Soren Kierkegaard in his famous uh, love for Regina that everybody learns about in college. So there is Soren Kierkegaard, a good uh, Lutheran, uh, growing up in a Lutheran church. Then he falls in love with Regina. Uh, and uh, he says to himself, oh, I love Regina more than anything else in life. This is what uh, I find most attractive in life. Then he says, however, I'm a Lutheran, and I have to learn how to love according to the theology of the cross. Therefore, the highest form of love is rejecting Regina, even though I love her more than anything else. And when I learn how to reject Regina, then my love will actually grow higher and better. Uh, and I will learn not only to love what I find attractive, but I will now start to learn to love that which is uh, unattractive. Now, uh, no doubt, uh, my friends who are specialists in Kierkegaard are going to say, I was a little unnuanced uh, when I said this. However, this is, this is the way he actually pro uh, uh, proceeds. And the rest of his life, uh, he says he never loved anything more than Regina. Uh, and I, uh, and nevertheless, uh, his whole life was built on how it was that he learned how to say no to what he wanted more than anything else. But that is not the theology of the cross. It's not what we're supposed to learn from the cross. We're not supposed to look at Jesus on the cross and say, there is a man cruelly treated, uh, with, a, with, with, uh, uh, thorns on his head, uh, having been beaten, uh, having been whipped, then uh, then nailed to the cross, blood pouring out, uh, and we see the terrible, uh, savage treatment that he was received. And then supposedly we're uh, we're supposed to say that which repulses me more than anything else, the shame and ignominy of this man on the cross. I'm going to turn it around, and I'm going to learn how to love that. And therefore, I'm going to learn how to love the lowly, the insignificant, the lost, the homeless, uh, and everything that the world negates. And by learning that, I will have learned the true love of Jesus Christ. And that, we're going to say, is baloney. <laughs> did, he, did, he, did Kierkegaard finally end up with Ugly Betty? <laughs> No, he did not. And as is usual, as as as, as is usual in this case, uh, he he ends up his whole life writing about love, but never having it. Uh, and of course, what he ends up with is none other than himself alone. Uh, that's where all of this ends up. So I am uh, I'm encouraging people. I'm speaking primarily to Nick here. Do not follow in this particular path. Uh, do not think that the theology of the cross is simply uh, negating your deep love, all right? <laughs> yeah, well, could I throw in a quick <clears throat> comment? Because I think there's some more stuff we could explore that goes along with this first, uh, maybe critique of this theory. Uh, well, the first part of what I might say is, um, kind of the glorification of suffering, like in the Catholic church, all the saints, you know, the self-flagellations, the asceticism, uh, poverty, 
all of these things that Christians have pursued historically that don't seem to be, it seems to be a misinterpretation of maybe Christ's example or the the Christian calling, all of the above. And the second, so we're talking about how this uh, view emphasizes the humanity of Christ. It almost strips Christ of his divinity in some senses because Mm -hmm. it's trying to say this is a man who is our example. This isn't a perfect, just perfect God. This is actually a man and you too can be excellent like he was. Um, And this is something that I always kind of wrestled with because we always talk about, and especially in contemporary music, well, everything. I mean, the gospel message is centered around God dying on the cross, Jesus dying on the cross. Um, And everyone is always like, I can't imagine anything, you know, worse than this. It's the biggest expression of love uh, that someone would die for another. But soldiers die for us every day. Um, there's missionaries that die gruesome, gruesome deaths that in my opinion might even be more grisly than Jesus on the cross. I mean, people are tortured or, I mean, their suffering is drawn out over a long period of time and yet their death doesn't seem to, uh, make any sort of, uh, reconciliation for my sins. And so if we could talk, and maybe this is now getting a little off topic, but if we could talk about, uh, how, Christ's death is different than these other uh, sacrificial deaths. And maybe it's not his death that makes it different, but his perfect life preceding his death in his divine nature. Yeah, I think Dr. Paulson will weigh in on this uh, uh, very, very well, Nick, but I would just make a quick response to you. And that is with, with my opening question here, um, the difference is, in understanding that in Christ, God is reconciling the world to God's self, and that Christ is not um, understood to be um, merely an example uh, to be followed. So it makes really all the difference in the world whether we understand that we're um, not only talking uh, about God's love, which is what ends up in all of this moralism or legalism, but we're actually proclaiming that in Christ, God comes to us and takes upon himself uh, the sin of the world. And so um, we are left kind of with a difference between um, basically a grandiose kind of humanism writ large or one in which we understand um, that the creator of the universe um, of all things visible and invisible has come to us in the person of Jesus out of God's deep love for us and uh, experiences our pain for us. Um, As uh, Hebrews speaks about, um, uh, we don't have a high priest who does not know our suffering, but who identifies with us. So um, I'm going to turn it to, to Dr. Paulson here for a little bit more elaboration on that, Nick. Well, that certainly is the uh, case that if, if, the, if, uh, if the main thing or one of the main things of Jesus dying on the cross uh, is that he is, um, uh, he is uh, learning what our pain is like. Uh, and therefore, uh, he is now identifying with our suffering. Um, no wonder uh, there are so many who simply don't believe that the cross is of any advantage to them. I mean, uh, Nick is too young to remember this, but this is, uh, this is uh, old President uh, Bill Clinton, uh, who was famous for always saying, I feel your pain. I, I don't need uh, I don't need Bill Clinton on the cross uh, for my salvation, and I don't need uh, Jesus Christ to be on the cross to feel my pain, as if this somehow is going to be the the way that God um, sets divinity aside. This is the kind of thing Nick was observing. There is some problem in the way that uh, that this and other theories speak about the cross of Jesus Christ because it tends to it tends to separate out 
the divine and human nature, and then it tries to decide which one it finds more advantageous. Uh, and uh, we know that, uh, that in this particular case, you can have it either way. You can say that what you're really seeing on the cross of Jesus Christ is the big divine God humbling himself so low that he is actually a, a willing to enter into our suffering. And then we're supposed to say, now, isn't that the kind of God we want? The God who knows our pain and knows our suffering and so on. But as anybody in this situation can uh, tell you, uh, it may help a little bit to know that somebody else knows my pain and suffering. But the real issue on the cross is not that God knows my suffering, but that he gets rid of it. That, yeah. that, that's, that's where we want all of this to head. And if all I'm getting out of uh, God on the cross is a co-sufferer, this is not enough. And most of the world has abandoned Christian faith, partly because of that particular issue. They know that that's not enough. You could also come in and say on the cross, well, uh, it's not so much God dipping his toe into the suffering of humanity on the cross that supposedly I'm supposed to get something out of, but you could take it the other way. That's the way Nick uh, presented it and say, this is primarily a human person suffering here. Uh, and you separate off the uh, divinity, and then you're supposed to say in some way or another, um, this, uh, this, this God is willing to, to set divinity aside and really be a true human being with me. And in some way or another, this is supposed to make humanity heroic in some way or another, even in the midst of the suffering and difficulties. And as I was pointing out, um, one of the things that Abelard does when he lays out his theory is actually quote Paul uh, in the way Nick described it. That is, the greatest thing that one human being can do for another human being is lay his life down. But as Nick observed, if that's all you're going to get out of this, then you can go through the history of many brave uh, uh, people in the army and the military who have laid their life down for another, or occasionally even somebody who is uh, uh, trying to rescue another person. Perhaps we could even say those people who are working in hospitals in the midst of a COVID epidemic, these people are willing to lay down their life for, an for another. But we have uh, we have many examples that don't force you to go back to the cross of Jesus Christ to get this kind of example. And Paul's point is actually that. Paul is saying there are other people who will sacrifice their life for you, but that's not what makes the cross of Jesus Christ our salvation. That's not what it is. So then we have to kind of dig around uh, as uh, Nick is doing and saying, well, then. What, what are we really talking about here? And here we can pick up one uh, really important aspect of what Abelard is talking about. One of the things that made Abelard frustrated with his, uh, his, his, uh, his earlier uh, teacher, uh, or indirectly teacher, Anselm, that we talked about last time, Anselm was describing this, as some people do, as a kind of thing that's fluttering up above us in heaven uh, and is a deal made between God, his son, and maybe Satan. But for Anselm, it really wasn't made between, uh, between uh, for, uh, with Satan. Satan was pushed out of the picture, and it really was an issue between the two great attributes in God's own being the attribute of mercy on one hand, and the attribute of justice on the other. How can God deal justly and hold to justice in the world, which is the law, and nevertheless also have mercy? If you have too much mercy, you lose the law. If you have uh, too much law, you lose mercy, and then everything is supposed to be finding the middle ground there. And then in comes uh, Abelard to say, what Anselm seems to miss entirely in all of this is that what actually happened when Jesus was crucified on the cross 
is that a crime was committed. And that's what, uh, that's what Gerhard Ferdi noticed when he was talking about these different um, theories. And he actually, Gerhard Ferdi actually begins with Abelard for this reason and says, the thing that Abelard helps us with is that he understand, understood uh, that on the cross of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, a crime had actually been committed. It wasn't just a deal between the father and the son or a way of trying to adjudicate between mercy and justice in God's own being, but a crime occurred. And now uh, Nick hasn't quite gotten uh, all the way here to uh, criminal justice, uh, uh, but uh, when you have a crime, what has to happen? Punishment. Uh, there has to be there has to be punishment. There has to and the first thing you have to figure out in in a crime when a crime has been con uh, committed, you have to figure out who is the one that committed the crime. I mean, who 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 is the one to blame in all of this? And Abelard is trying to figure that out. Anselm set that aside and simply said, "This is." a situation in which God is trying to patch a hole in his law, and he is going to do it with or without you. But here we have another version of it. Abelard knows a crime has been committed, and he's trying to figure out who the perpetrator of the crime, who the criminal is. And the first thing he says is that the old way that the, uh, the, the old theologians did it, this is what we would have to take up in our last podcast, the so-called classic or early version of this, they all said that the criminal in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was Satan. Satan is the one who actually did all of this. He is the criminal. He is the one who actually has to be um, brought before the court of justice and charged with his crime. But Abelard comes in and says, as long as you think Satan is the real criminal, you're going to miss one of the key matters in the crucifixion. And what do you suppose that is? Nick, any idea? No. I think you're giving me too much credit. You're, on, you're explaining these things, and you keep throwing my name in, and I appreciate it. But I don't think I'm there with you quite. Hey, listen. There's a crime that's been committed, and there's a criminal out there on the loose. We have to find out who that is. Nick. That's got to be uh, that's got to be a, 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 a legal study 101. If there's a criminal on the loose, you got to find him, and then you got to prosecute him. And uh, in comes uh, Edward and says, "It's not Satan who is the criminal. The criminal is us. Uh, we're the criminal in this matter, and uh, and human beings, sinners." are the criminal that put Jesus Christ on the cross. And therefore, Abelard, sometimes he's called a realist in the, for this reason, Abelard knows that there is a crime that's com been committed and you can't pass it off on a myth of Satan. You have to now say that there is human culpability here and the culpability has to be addressed. And the addressing of this is not simply saying that somehow, Somewhere back in time, a group of people, or maybe several groups of people, like the Jewish Sanhedrin, or uh, Pilate representing Roman law, that somehow they made errors in judgment that ended up by mistake putting him on the cross. But there was, there was actually a criminal action used by humans against Jesus. Now we have to go further. What was their crime? What crime did these human beings commit? And in fact, uh, uh, Abelard is going to say, this crime continues to go on today so that even you and I can be identified as the ones who are criminally culpable for the death of Jesus. And remember, I told you that you had to be uh, at least 60 years old to understand uh, Abelard, so you could open up uh, the whole story of what love is and Here we go, what Nick. it means. <laughs> we were getting close to this, 
And Abelard is going to say, you know what your crime is? You didn't love Jesus. That's your crime. But now he's going to say, you know what, 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 what is going to be the way to overcome this crime? You're going to learn to love him. And this is how uh, he is actually going to start to lay out what love means, how you actually love Jesus Christ on the cross, and how you goofed it up in the beginning where you didn't love him as you should have loved him. I want to make just a couple of comments here. The first is that I think in our first uh, interpretation, namely the objective Latin view, is is what you're saying steve is i think abelard saw this as a big metaphysical mathematical problem that anselm is trying to solve and it's happening as some theolo theologians have said way way over our head and so abelard is in a fashion trying to say well let's bring it down here uh to our our understanding uh, from our human perspective, but then it really almost becomes uh, a comedy of errors again with all kinds of problems. Namely, I feel your pain. And I was just thinking of this last night, reading through St. Matthew's Passion narrative, where um, in chapter 27, speaking of Pilate, his wife comes to him and says, have nothing to do with this righteous man this Jesus of Nazareth. Now listen for the pronoun here. For I have suffered much <laughs> over him in my dream today. So it becomes, it becomes something where we are identifying, trying to identify with the cross rather than on the cross, God identifies with Christ with us. And um, that brings me to the next point where I think I think we're going with this as well, Nick, and that is in this atonement theory, I have the sense that humanity's basic problem is that of ignorance. So let me, says Abelard, teach you or have Christ teach you with appropriate uh, kind of knowledge um, when it comes down to, and this is where we'd probably be going deeper, is to listen to the language of St. Paul in Romans 7, who says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I, I want, and I do the thing that I hate. Um, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So the question is, well, if you just get enough information here, buddy, if you just uh, can follow um, the example of Christ and, and get beyond this ignorance, um, you know, it's the difference, as you would say with Kierkegaard, of my play on it, uh, the seriousness of a sickness unto death or in this view, what I'm hearing is kind of a, a sickness under bed until you can get sufficient therapy to get your legs back under you. Um, I know I kind of went across the, the beachfront there, but I think this question of knowledge or ignorance, uh, which leaves us wanting constantly the dead ends that are there, is that we finally have to come to the point in which we say, there's nothing, nothing we can do. It, it's, you know, we are dead to rights. Uh, uh, we just finally the gravity of God's grace uh, just overwhelms us and we recognize ourselves to be sinners. That we are, as we use our liturgy, in bondage to sin and cannot save ourselves. And it seems like Abelard is always trying to squeak out of that one. Well, that's right. Uh, let's say that you had uh, somebody who came before you. Uh, uh, Nick, I'm going to force you into this again, and you are the judge. And the, the, uh, <clears throat> the, the uh, defendant comes before you and says, uh, it is true that I did this crime. 
but I was ignorant of the law. And what do you say? Ignorance is no defense. There you are. <laughs> and uh, you, uh, you, are, you are right. <laughs> what was that, John? I said plead the fifth. Yeah, that's right. But uh, you, you are right, uh, John, that, that, the, that the common way that we try to deal with sin is, uh, is to make this an issue of knowledge or, or lack of knowledge, and that then, then the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is supposed to give us knowledge of something. We're supposed to, uh, we're supposed to know something, and specifically we're supposed to know some law that previously we didn't know, like, how about this one? Don't kill God. Uh, then you say, well, wait a second. I didn't know, you know, that wasn't really in the Ten Commandments as far as I could tell or any other. Uh, so, you know, I'm not really guilty of this sort of uh, thing. And, of course, uh, very quickly we realize that that is not an escape. And this is, uh, this is uh, there is no way out in this. But I, I have to pick up one other uh, illustration that you, you were using, John. That is, uh, that. That the that the cross of Jesus Christ finally floods over us, so that we can't uh, deny or we can't we can't say uh, in some way or another uh, that that we uh, uh, that we are not guilty of sin. In some ways, Abelard is trying to use something like this because the common description of love is that it pours over us in such a way finally that we can't um we're overwhelmed uh that we have no other uh recourse in the middle of this and this is normally the way the love of god is depicted it actually comes from plato who described uh the love of god as volcanic uh or as um you know, you know, as as a power that's being poured down from above. It's not, it's not precisely Plato. It's actually his uh, his Neoplatonist followers who start to fill this in, and that that God's love is like a great big um, uh, outpouring of uh, of water or something that finally just uh, rolls over us. Uh, like the ocean over a drop of water, and then just uh, overwhelms us in this way. And in in some picture like that, the we're supposed oh, to have some, some kind of re response uh, to the cross that way. Um, but here we have to uh, go in a little deeper to realize what kind of a problem we've actually got here. And the problem that Abelard has got. Uh, actually, all the theories have it in one way or another, is that they're primarily understanding uh, the relationship with God as a righteousness that comes by love. And so Abelard says this over and over again: the righteousness of with uh, the righteousness of God, and therefore the righteousness that we get from God is a righteousness of love. And he keeps making this point. He does it in his famous section where he's talking about uh, Paul in Romans 3, where Paul is talking about the blood of Christ uh, or uh, Christ uh, actually now uh, absolving sin and what this actually means on the cross of Jesus Christ. And he does a little uh, change uh, in Paul. He says, it is true that Paul refers to faith here as the thing that makes us righteous, but faith can only make us righteous if it produces love in us. And this was the old habit of the Christian theologians before Luther. This is, um, this is the habit of turning everything of righteousness before God into some form of love, which then is understood to be an inner desire that we all have, which has to, in some way or another, be trained properly, be pointed in the right direction. Um, and uh, the cross of Jesus Christ is supposed to do that for us, maybe by overwhelming us 
but it's actually supposed to be the thing that is teaching love to you. And you were ignorant of love before it, but it's now going to actually teach that love to you. And it's going to make the love pour out onto you in such a way that if you make yourself available to the cross of Jesus Christ, if you put yourself in front of it, that love is going to pour out on you and it's going to overwhelm you. It's going to change you. Uh, it's actually going to make you into a true lover uh, by way of, um, here I'll put it in his language, it's going to now discipline or train the love to go in the right direction. And he thinks that before his own love was going in somewhat the wrong direction, though he will never say it was entirely wrong. In fact, he comes from the old tradition that says no love, especially starting with base fleshly erotic love, is finally wrong as long as you learn, as long as you are taught by it to love not that thing, but that which is higher than it. So you start in the low form of love, which, by the way, he definitely did. So Abelard uh, found Heloise as his student. And there he was uh, hired by El uh, Heloise's uncle uh, to, teach, uh, uh, to teach Heloise a Greek. And as he's sitting there teaching her Greek, uh, he suddenly starts to exercise love in a way that is not of the higher sort, but of the lower sort. And uh, uh, suddenly we find uh, this famous love between Abelard and Heloise that uh, can only be said of a Frenchman. And as the, uh, as the, uh, uh, as, uh, the philosophers have said ever since, there's a book uh, that has fairly recently come out called uh, the Invention of Love by the French. Only, only the French could do that. Abelard was a Frenchman. And, uh, and there he sits with Heloise, and he invents love. Uh, and the uh, story then starts to unfold between Abelard and Heloise, which pr produces a child. And then eventually they decide that maybe they can even get married, though they have to keep the marriage secret. Because as he says, I don't want to lose my job. My job depends on me being a, uh, a monk uh, and I can't be married. So I will marry you, but I will keep it uh, silent. And in the middle of all of this, finally, the uncle sends in his henchman and castrates Abelard in the middle of the night uh, to teach him what true love is. Uh, and from that point on, Abelard's love then had to become more pure than it ever was before and rise to higher heights. So he says, this is what we're actually learning with the cross of Jesus Christ, to love the higher things, not the lower things, and that, that we go through these uh, trials and difficulties, certainly he did, uh, and in this way then your love is going ever higher climbing, climbing, climbing on the ladder until finally it learns to love God above all things. And that, he says, is what righteousness is. In comes Luther to say, baloney to all that. That is not what the cross is doing. It's not what true love is. Uh, and the real thing that makes you truly a human in relationship to God is not your inner desiring mechanism which you're trying to train to go ever higher, higher, higher. That's not what humanity is or divinity is or love is or righteousness. Righteousness comes by faith alone, which means not by love. Yeah, yeah no, I... So Abelard seems like his theory often slips into just basic moralism. Uh, like learning to love Jesus or learning to direct your love is just being moral or kind of doing the, following out these precepts that we've learned from Christ, which doesn't seem to discern Christian, uh, the Christian life from other religious lives that also practice, you know, trying to be moral or be loving or all these other things. And it leaves out the, the question of salvation but I think that's kind of another thing because then you, and then at the end, you know, justification by faith, 
because I think, yeah, the problem with all moralist theories is that it's, it's, it quickly becomes a, you know, justified by works. And so in this (laughs) worksheet that uh, uncle John has typed up, justification is the fourth uh, point that uh, it talks about. And John wrote, um, with faith merely being seen as a special type of knowledge or in, uh, or information, uh, then justification by faith actually becomes justification by works. And so, uh, Uncle John or Dr. Paulson, if either one of you would want to talk about that, that's kind of an interesting component of this as well that I think Avalar overlooks. Yeah, I'll give you a quick thing, and then uh, then John could uh, take over. Abelard says the reason that uh, that the, the the thing that you're being taught in the cross is is how to love, and the reason that it's not a simple work, uh, that is a simple moralism, is that it's going behind the mere action of doing something that you consider to be right or good or an act of love. Uh, he says that's not enough, and Paul, as, uh, as as the apostle, is saying that's why it doesn't save you. A work doesn't save you. But uh, but now here's Abelard. What you, what Paul means, he says, is that you have to do more than a mere work, more than a mere moralism, and what you really have to do is make sure that your intent is the right intent. That is, your inner motivation is correct. That is, your inner love mechanism is working properly. And that's what Paul wants. He wants, uh, it's not just that he wants to get rid of all works. He wants the works to go higher, uh, to make sure that the intent is right. And by the way, you'll recognize this in the law all the time, uh, where you're not just talking about the act that was done, but what was the intent behind the thing? And, uh, and Abelard is saying, that's what Paul really wants. In comes Luther later and says, no, 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 no. Neither the work nor the intent is the thing that makes for true love or righteousness before God. It's faith. Faith. And faith is not increasing the demand beyond the mere external work to an internal intent. Now uh, the, the uh, matter of the difference between faith and love becomes crucial. That's, I know what we'll have to take up uh, uh, next time, but uh, th- this is the difference between an internal intent uh, and the external word. Uh, which is what Luther now recognizes is what makes faith. Faith is not referring to an internal intention inside you, uh, but it is now going to be referring to an external word that bestows a gift to you that is not an internal movement of your willpower. Uh, And that's now going to be a very different world and thing. It's going to step out of moralism and also a higher form of internal um, um, uh, self-evaluation uh, that uh, someone like uh, like Abelard is trying to get to here. Nick, I'm going to take you back in history to when Steve and I were in Chicago together. Uh, what was that, Steve? Five or six years ago, probably in graduate school. <laughs> yeah, it can't, it can't be like, that much. Like two decades, or two score and more years ago, probably. Yeah, this was well, well before Nick was a, uh, a glimmer uh, in uh, in anyone's eye. All right. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I remember uh, sitting in the quads with a young surgery uh, resident. And um, I'll just say that her name is Liz. And she had just been told by her husband, I don't know, maybe two or three months before, who was one of the Divinity School students, lovely, uh, that he was uh, 
wanting a divorce. And then when I saw her, she was just talking about how she, uh, at the age of 31 or so, been diagnosed with breast cancer. And so as I listened to her uh, just share her, her grief, um, I wanted to share with Liz in a fashion that that she is surrounded by her friends and um, um, that God is with her in the midst of this, that God has come to us in the person of Jesus and his cross uh, to identify with us. And I remember her looking at me as I quoted the 23rd Psalm that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow, we... Um, take courage in knowing that uh, thou art with me. And I remember Liz saying to me, and this goes back to Dr. Paulson's earlier comment about I feel your pain. She said, damn it, John, I don't want a God who suffers with me. Now, this is a true surgeon speaking. I want a God who can fix it. And that's finally, I think, the difference between um, the atonement theories and our talking about God uh, in Christ on the cross and the actual event of Christ coming to us and taking on the sin of the world and saying that you are now free. And it is not only a matter of Christ identifying with us in our suffering, but overcoming it. And this is the dramatic kind of language that we are going to encounter in the Christus Victor, or as Dr. Paulson calls, the classic view of the uh, atonement that comes from, uh, well, kind of a retrieval from Gustav Allain that goes way back Steve, I want to say to Irenaeus at least, and then is picked up again by Luther with this incredible uh, language of, uh, of, of a battle scene, so to speak, and, and the victory of sin and death that is accomplished by Christ's death and resurrection. Uh, Nick, do you have a follow-up question for Dr. Paulson as we kind of wrap this up today? Yes. I mean... I think this applies to both of you. Uh, John, when you were saying uh, in that good word is you are free, um, I think there's a few words that we throw around, gospel, faith, and justification. And I think a lot of the times we lose the specific meaning of those terms, and sometimes we start to use them as umbrella terms. Uh, now, Dr. Paulson, you said, uh, faith comes externally and it's it bestows a it's a word that bestows a gift of faith upon you and i think is that word you are free and then your sins are forgiven you are free and then that gives you it instills faith according to that definition and that's that's kind of a, a hope or a trust or a belief yeah uh Yes to these things. Uh, uh, I, I'll say this uh, quickly. Uh, it is a preacher giving a promise. Mm -hmm. And the promise is not yet seen. That's why it's still hoped for. But it is already given in the present now. And therefore already makes us free and righteous or if we can now use the language we're talking about specifically here on the, uh, on the matter of the cross, it actually does bring suffering and death to an end. It doesn't just commiserate. It doesn't just feel your pain. It actually brings it to an end, though not yet in feeling or sight. Then we have to say, well, in what reality, in what way? Well, according to the promise of a God who doesn't lie. And when the promise is given uh, from a person who doesn't lie, that means the thing itself is sure and certain. 
though we haven't yet experienced it in the way we typically would want to experience it, that is through feeling. And Abelard um, does not yet understand what it means to have faith that is sure and certain and therefore actually receives uh, the end of suffering, sin, and death, but does not yet feel it. Because for him, everything is determined by his feeling. What his feeling is at the moment. That's what he means by love. Love is a feeling. And uh, you either feel it or you don't feel it. And if you feel it for the wrong thing, like a Heloise, then you have to get rid of it. And then you have to increase your feeling and so on. And uh, here we're starting to learn what makes a human a human is not tied ultimately and completely to that feeling. And that is hard for us to grasp. It's hard for us to understand. And it's hard for us to actually sit still in trust in faith alone uh, and wait for the feeling. Now, I think, oh, this is going to be my last thing. Uh, but uh, what was interesting is uh, Uncle John, Pastor Christofferson, in his sermon, uh, spoke of doubt as it interacts with faith. And then later, uh, Pastor Backer spoke about faith and how it, it should have nothing to do with doubt. And what I thought was interesting is I think that it's probably a distinction in the definitions and not a, a difference in the opinions toward faith. Because I now, Uncle John, you tell me if this is fair or not. I feel like we talk about faith in general terms. And Dr. Paulson, you just said faith, uh, having a certain hope, you know, a certainty in a promise and how that's often so difficult for us to uh, realize in our lives. I think that's kind of what, John, you were saying is we use this umbrella term about faith. And when we say that, we're thinking of our, our relationship uh, to God, our Christian experience. We bring in a lot more things than just the medical or clinical definition of faith. And I think that umbrella term of faith does encapsulate this relationship moving from doubt to certainty. You know, we say like, uh, well, my faith journey, you know, has been hard or whatever. But then I think there's this more specific clinical uh, definition of faith that maybe uh, that you're talking about, Dr. Paulson, that maybe then Jeff was referencing of that external externally given gift that gives you certainty in your uh, belief in Christ. Would both of you say that's a fair representation of views? I'm just trying to reconcile it in my own mind. There are general ways of, of, of using terms like faith. And uh, when you use it in a general sense, that, uh, that general reference to faith can refer to uh, the feeling. But as, as uh, Pastor Christofferson said earlier, when, when, uh, when Paul uh, refers to himself as being, oh, wretched man, the good that I would, I do not, and that which I would not do, I do. He's referring now to the feeling of the old creature or old uh, Adam. That's what he's referring to. And, uh, and if you generally said, uh, my faith now has all kinds of doubt in it, you're now referring to faith generally and referring to yourself in terms of the feeling you have. But you are right also, Nick. What, we, what Paul really means when he says faith is not the general term that includes his feeling of wretchedness. He's now uh, referring to the promise given to him just before he said, oh, wretched man that I am, in baptism, which wa was the promise of Christ defeating sin, death, and the power of the devil, right then and right there. And that faith is sure because it rests not in my feeling. Uh, that my, my feeling of doubt, my feeling of, um, uh, you know, as, uh, as Paul says, wretchedness. Wretched, wretchedness means 
I, I sealed out. That's what that means. Uh, but nevertheless, the, the uh, trust is not in the feeling. It is in the promise, which is outside of me. And uh, now uh, there you can say, no doubt whatsoever. Uh, but, but Paul himself is saying that both of these things exist, but only one of them saves me. It's not the feeling of my uh, wretchedness. And this also helps us uh, to understand what Christ is doing on the cross. We can build in it later. But he is not simply trying to establish a new and better feeling that itself will be declared righteous before God in the end. That is a feeling of higher love rather than lower love. That's not what the uh, cross of Christ is about. Thank you. I, I think that there are two basic ways that I would say that the preacher goes about his or her um, calling. And one is to move, or a theologian for that matter, is to move from the human condition, from that which is the ex existential uh, experience, which would include feelings, to that which is the gospel word that comes in and uh, in the person of Christ and reveals to us that we cannot, by our own effort or understanding, come to Christ or to make ourselves righteous before God. So I would say the distinction here, and, and the other, I'm sorry, and the second one is one in which the gospel word, that is the freeing word, is proclaimed uh, to someone um, with the pre-understanding that we already are aware that we are sinners, that we fall short. So it's a difference of approach, and sometime down the line, you'll find this expressed in two great 20th century theologians, the difference between this way of going at theology, the first one from the human condition to the question that is raised by all the dead ends that we finally come up against when we're doing this diagnostic, is the person of Paul Tillich's work. The other one would be where the word of God uh, is proclaimed to us, uh, comes to us without a lot of the, what should I say, the diagnostic work of the existential situation, et cetera, et cetera, and the dead ends is that of, of Karl Barth, uh, which is basically the, the expression of expressing the kerygma, the basic uh, message of the gospel, which you identified nicely last week with as being the forgiveness of sin in the person of Jesus. And I think along these same lines, and I don't want to get too drawn out with this, but when you ask about uh, faith, um, I would like Dr. Paulson to respond you know, with me and together with you on this as well. I think what happens sometimes with a word like justification by faith is that we turn faith into a work as well. Um, and it becomes a, a work righteousness. And um, I think Dr. Paulson, when he speaks about baptism here, it's important to understand that faith is a gift as well that's given to God it's given by God to us. And so perhaps in our Lutheran confessions, it's better to say justification by faith through grace. That way, we're not as tempted to say, oh, okay, if I just believe, you know, enough or sufficiently. And so I think sometimes it's really important to understand that faith itself is a gift as well. It's not up to Nick or Dr. Paulson or John to, to have sufficient trust, which is one of Luther's favorite synonyms for faith, but it is a gift as well from God that is uh, given to us uh, through the waters of baptism and continue to be sustained uh, by the words of institution when Christ comes to us in the Lord's Supper. Uh, 
What do we you think about that? Yeah, uh, just remember you as you started. Uh, you're talking about the uh, Wild Bill of theology. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, oh, I, he's going to shoot us guy, up and leave now. I, I'm the kind who, whenever he goes in to play poker, always has his uh, back to the wall because he knows somebody wants to come in and shoot him in the back of the head. Uh, therefore, I, 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 I'm the kind who says justification by faith alone. Period. Uh, however, I. <laughs> I will say, I will say, uh, you know, your point is exactly oh. right. Faith is not a work. Uh, uh, faith, faith is never work, and human beings always want to try to make it into that. Right. So what I would say at the end of all of this, regarding Abelard, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross, and what love actually means, then we can get back to the very practical matters. Uh, Nick, when you find your Regina. When you find uh, your Heloise, do not negate her in order to love God more, but grab hold of her and never let her go. Uh, and uh, both, uh, both, both uh, your uh, Dr. Paulson and uh, your Pastor Christopherson, Uncle John, uh, figured out how to do that. Uh, and we have been uh, greatly blessed ever since that time. So we are passing that word on to you. It's a good word. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Dr. Paulson. And we'll see you next time.